Welcome to the Barnaby Cecil NHS Pensions Podcast. I'm Tom Skinner, founder and managing director of Barnaby Cecil, a financial planning firm working with NHS members in the UK. I'm Emma Walker, also co-founder and main research analyst at Barnaby Cecil. This podcast is designed to address the complexities of the NHS pension scheme and to help members feel clearer about their options before retirement and beyond. Each quarter, we'll record an episode based on the questions you've asked us. If you'd like your question answered, please tweet us at Barnaby Cecil FP or email us at hello at barnabycecil.com. The information in this podcast is intended to be used as a guide only, and nothing that um, I have said should be taken as direct financial advice. Before making any final decision, you should always consult a suitably qualified finance professional. Hello and welcome back to episode 13. In this episode, I am going to talk to you about what happens if you can no longer work, uh, what benefits are paid to you and provided to you through your employment whilst working for the NHS, and what insurance policies are there available to you, and what does the insurance market have to offer to meet the needs of anybody who feels that their benefits through work fall short. This is the fourth and final part of a four-part interlinked series in which, well, the the purpose of which was inspired by um, a Twitter exchange in which I felt some of the questions that were coming up um, could be answered in a in a series of a series of short uh, podcasts, um, information that um, wouldn't take too much time to prepare, um, and questions that I'd seen raised a couple of times. And so, just to recap, episode ten looked at whether somebody should remain uh, a member of the NHS pension scheme, what options were available to them if they decided to leave, and what would look like what would life look like in or out of the pension scheme. Episode 11, uh, I talked about how good is good, and we focused on four individuals born between 1961 to 1991, and I attempted to articulate what the pension accrued for each of those individuals would look like uh, at various stages. In episode 12, uh, so beside me, we looked at uh, increasing your income in retirement. So what options are available to you if once you've uh, had uh, uh, made an attempt at establishing what your income would be at retirement. Uh, what options have you got to increase that income if you feel you fall short? So what does the NHS provide to you if you can no longer work, if uh, if you're unwell and you can't, uh, you can't perform your duties? Once you've worked for five full years, you uh, acquire six months full pay, six months half pay. That calculation is always based on your basic pay so it doesn't include any uplifts or any awards or any on calls it's just your your basic contract so if your net take-home pay was let's say three thousand pounds a month that would be three thousand pounds and your basic net pay was three thousand pounds per month that would be three thousand pounds for six months and then fifteen hundred pounds on uh, on half pay after the 12th month period you if you're still unwell and you're still unable to work, you may be able to claim benefits. Um, the benefit system is complex um, and it depends on your personal circumstances, and so they may be higher than this figure. But it's about a, it's slightly less than 100 pounds per week, again depending on your circumstances. So a very significant drop in pay, uh, even after the the six month uh, on half pay reduction. 
So how can the scheme help? How can the pension scheme help you if you're then uh, unable to work uh, after that period? Uh, and possibly you, you may apply for this during the period that you're off sick, depending on on, um, on your personal circumstances and the reason that you're off work in the first place. But there's, there's uh, tier one and tier two. Tier one is where the um, pension accrued is paid at, at the date of, of leaving work. Um, and I've seen in my in my career three or four times where this has been applied. And sometimes the individual has been able to return to work. But in most instances, the, the, the reason for being off was quite significant and it meant a, a restricted uh, return to work or, um, or adaptation to their, to their working week. Tier two is where the individual is more unwell and is unlikely to return to work, in my experience, um, for, for a range of reasons, but, but unlikely to come back in the, in the role they were previously. In that instance, it is dependent on the scheme that you're in, but in section 1992, section 1995, for example, it's two thirds of your membership to your normal date of retirement, so it's uplifted and, and enhanced. And then there's the survivors' pension as well. So section 1995 pays 50% of uh, the tier two calculation, so that's the more the more severe uh, illness uh, in, in normally, um, and that pays. 50% of the accrued, the two-thirds calculation, which is 37.5 in the 2008 scheme and 33.75 in the 2015 scheme. So those schemes pay, the, the, the two newer schemes pay less than 50% of the accrued income. But often, because those schemes don't pay uh, tax-free cash automatically, the, the starting income can be higher. Uh, and so the reduction in uh, in income uh, as a percentage um, is to account for the uh, the lower level of tax-free cash but uh, the higher level of income as a, as a starting position. If you're not working you can also claim a pension for your children so if you're not if you're so if you're uh, unable to return to work um, or if death occurs in service um, and the children are under the age of 23 and still in full-time education and this is 25% for each child, which is capped at 50% of the overall amount. Um, but it's still possible to receive uh, 100% of the uh, member's original p- uh, pension um, at the discretion of the trustees if, for example, there's a, a very young family. And that's something that um, uh, should also be mentioned, that it is at the discretion of the of the trustees whether... Uh, your application for tier one or tier two is is uh, accepted, and there is, um, as you would expect, a, a medical input from um, clinically qualified individuals advising the trustees of the scheme as to as to which um, as, as to the level um, of tier um, to apply to the individual's specific circumstances. So those all deal with the income payments paid to either you or your family um, if anything happens to you during your working life but there's also death in service um, and again th- this is something that would be lost if the individual leaves the the scheme uh, it should be mentioned if you're listening to this and thinking about that you've opted out is you've opted um, in, in your pensions I'll, I'll come to that in in a moment but the death in service if the individual dies five years before retirement or within five years of retirement pays twice the pensionable pay um, so if your pensionable pay was 
hundred thousand pounds, then the payment would be would be two hundred thousand pounds made to you. If death occurs after retirement, then it's five times the pension minus any pension already paid to you, or two times pay minus any retirement lump sum. So the so the lesser of those two figures. So let's look at some real life situations now as to how these, how, in reality, how uh, each of these features. Uh, are likely to interact with what what happens in the in the real world. So let's say you're working and somebody goes into the back of you of, at a, a roundabout and you, you hurt your back and you find that standing up for prolonged periods of time is difficult and um, you're having physiotherapy, but uh, you can't work. Yeah, you can't you can't initially return to to full time work and you have a few months off to recover so most of that would be recovered would be covered in your in in the sick pay as part of the contract but if you entered more than six months off and um uh you had a, a type of a type of situation that meant that you had you were sort of there was, a, there was an element of recovery and then the issue whatever that may be returned um and, and you had to take more time off then there would be an element of sort of stop start to the to the way that the sick pay would be covered and if anything then wasn't covered by the nhs or a period wasn't and then indefinitely the policy that you would consider would be something called income protection so income protection is where your percentage of your income is covered the insurance provider won't cover a hundred percent of your income simply because they want there to be a sufficient enough incentive for you to return back to work but you'll get some the amount of cover that you'll get will be somewhere between 70 and 80 percent and there's no income tax paid uh, on the payment so the the amount that you receive will be uh, around about 70 to 80 percent of your um, of your of your previous level of cover and the idea with income protection is that it will pay out for however long it is required until you return back to work but what it won't cover then if you have a very very long uh, period off work is increases that you that you would have enjoyed as you went through the pay bands uh, if if you were unable to work until your normal retirement date so let's say that was 60 so most of these policies will cover you till 60 you can extend it to 65 but it makes it much more expensive and so for most people covering it until 60 is perfectly uh, sufficient so you have a uh, a policy now um, but if the if the reason that you were um, on well that, that you were unable to work um, kept you away for longer as mentioned there would be a loss of future uh, earned income because uh, the income protection would be static. It would it would in, in, it would increase with inflation, but it wouldn't it wouldn't uh, yet include increases to your uh, to your pay under the normal pay structure. It also wouldn't I- include the requirement to maybe maybe make alterations to your home. So let's say in that initial incident that the the crash was more severe and you and you had some the, some of the issues were life changing. You might have to make alterations to your home, maybe install a lift or. or make moderate moderations to your property and in addition to that as mentioned there's that future loss of uh, of lifestyling income and the policy to cover that would be something called critical critical illness cover now income protection there's no definition of the reason why you can't work so it's 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 very broad and would capture all whereas the with a critical illness policy they've specified the actual illness 
that um, would have meant that you would be um, off work for significantly longer. And there can be a tendency then to look at a policy that has the greatest level of illnesses. So it might def- it might have 38 illnesses defined as part of its critical illness policy. But you might find if you looked at those illnesses, and it should be quite easy to get, to get hold of the policy definitions, but you might find there's a, a policy that has 36 or 35 um, illnesses, but it has a, a better definition in terms of what they call or how they define cancer or what there has to be present in the blood for there to be a heart attack. So it's worth looking not just at the number of illnesses, but also how they define the different illnesses. And that's one of the things that's great when you're working with people, with clinicians, uh, and advising advising them on critical illness cover because they're then you know, more qualified than somebody like me to fully understand you know, the nature of how they're defining the illness. Um, and that can be quite an interesting uh, conversation. Sometimes it's more positive than they had initially thought it would be, perhaps around something like diabetes, and in other cases, yeah, it hasn't been quite as comprehensive as they might have thought um, it would be. Or there's illnesses on there, so so there may be that they've that to, to get them ahead of the rankings in terms of in terms of number of illnesses, they've just put on a couple of uh, things that are so rare that there's almost no need to specify them because they would be covered under under other illnesses. So income to to recover, ideally a short period of illness to recover, and then the ability to claim back on that policy again. If the uh, if if the initial reason that you were off work for comes back, and then critical illness cover to cover lifestyle and the loss of further savings into investments and ISAs and, and the lifestyle that, that yeah that you would have uh, been accustomed to if you'd have carried on working, but no reason in either example why the individual can't make a full recovery and return back to work having had the critical illness cover payout, um, and that does happen. And then finally, life cover and a, and a second part to life cover. Life cover is well, very straightforward in terms of uh, defining why the payment would be made. It's also because the, the, the chance of people dying before retirement is very low. It's quite cheap. And I often see people have sort of over-insured them in, in this area, or, or my view is that they've over-insured themselves in this area, in, in, in an area that is obviously the, yeah, the worst outcome imaginable for a family but there's a there's a far greater chance of the individual um, either not being able to work for a prolonged period or having an illness that that uh, means that they can't work but uh, thankfully that they don't actually die of rendering a life cover policy ineffective conversely if death does occur and you have income and critical illness cover only then they're ineffective as well because they require the individual to continue to be living to pay out. Although you can attach a life cover element to a critical illness plan as well. So it works very well if you have a combination of all three because that covers a a multitude of eventualities rather than um, the specific defined way in which the other, in which each in their own right, they um, they each cover risk, and then the sort of three B life cover policy would be a family income benefit. A family income benefit is where a specified amount of income is paid out per annum. So this can be quite effective where where there is perhaps private uh, fees or an ongoing cost until a, a child's twenty third birthday, for example. 
And because the risk then is decreasing year on year to an insurance provider, family income benefit or was income uh, policies um, are are very low cost. Um, and so, yes, where where you've got um, an ongoing cost each year outside of mortgage, which would be cleared by which would normally be cleared by life cover, a family income benefit can work can work very well and is is as mentioned very cost effective too. When setting up each of these policies um, or reviewing the policies that you've got now, you would want your premiums to be guaranteed and the cover to be guaranteed. So guaranteed premiums mean that the insurance insurance company can't alter your premium by more than um, an agreed amount, perhaps inflation each year, but they can't uh, increase the cost. Whereas reviewable premiums can be reviewed every five years um, and do then usually increase as the individual becomes older. The other thing to look for is a thing called split deferred policies uh, with an income protection plan because if your deferred period, so the period before the policy will pay out is 12 months, then um, there would be a six-month period on the on the half pay before the policy would start. So look through your policy and make sure that it, it starts at six months or uh, it just simply says, so... To, so they don't have to calculate how long you've worked as a doctor. Often they'll say the policy will, will start after a six-month deferred period or whenever your deferred sick pay ends. So they haven't got to work out, in the case of somebody who's worked for four years, that it isn't quite uh, the six-month period. With the with the critical illness cover, as mentioned, in the same way as income protection, uh, look, look for policies that have guaranteed premiums and in addition to that, that have something called total permanent disability. So this is uh, a list of five uh, daily activities. So if you're if if the reason you that you're you're making a claim isn't covered by one of the illnesses, but it's very severe, it should then be covered by total permanent disability. So it'd be one of these three, usually three of the five daily activities that you can't perform, and the policy will then will then pay out. So there are slight nuances to the to the each of the issues covered in this episode. Um, they have tended to, to focus on those um, benefits in the into in scheme in section nineteen ninety five, and the payment of pension income is slightly different in two thousand eight and two thousand fifteen. And they, in discussing this, I focused on an employed person. If you're a GP, then you'll be fully aware that the uh, your obligations are covered in the partnership agreement and uh, usually the GP is required to, to cover the cost of a locum and that's a slightly different uh, insurance policy and in addition to that, that person may wish to have income protection and all the policies that we've discussed as well separately. Now within insurance, insurance providers are looking to specify their risk uh, in their terms and conditions, so what will they cover and what won't they cover, so that they can then calculate the probability of everybody that they've insured requiring them to to, to pay out, and the percentages. And again, this is something that you should also consider because it's it's publicly available information. What percentage payout of their claims um, have they? Um, have they made uh, and most of those will, will be certainly the best companies will be up into the 90 percent and so there's two things i would say there one is that when you apply for these policies you have to disclose medically any existing 
issues that you've had so as you get older there's there's a, a greater likelihood that you may have had some time off or there may be something in your notes and so um it uh, it can be better to take out the policy when you're younger fitter and well uh, even though it's less likely that you'll make a claim so that when you do require the policy later on in life um, if you require the policy later on in life then there's nothing excluded or the premiums aren't raised and so on that point i would say that when you are exp- yeah, disclosing your your medical history it's better to and there's obviously a legal requirement to do so but to to, to tell them everything and then argue at the outset because if ever a policy hasn't been paid it's only happened once in 17 18 years of being a financial advisor um, and in, in in that instance, the uh, individual had forgotten to disclose that they had taken beta blockers. And the reason that they made the claim on the policy was linked to uh, a condition uh, that was stress-related. But I have also seen people disclose beta blockers. There has been then been a... Well, I've seen people disclose things that are stress-related. There has then been an exclusion on the policy that i felt was unfair we've then challenged that with the writers and said look this the, the reason this person was off for stress during that period was circumstantial and uh, it was then accepted on those terms and so it's always better to, to to fully disclose which is a requirement legally anyway but even if you're not sure whether something should be disclosed disclose it and then and then argue it out at the start and then you're covered and then and then there'll be no issues and the reasons why the policies don't pay out almost always are because it was later found that whether knowingly or otherwise it was later found out that um, the full medical history wasn't fully um, fully declared at outset and how to how to think about insurance then so this kind of goes back to um, some of the previous episodes in that the whole point of insurance is to safeguard what the individual would have had if they'd worked their full uh, entire career so in the same way that it's important to establish what the number is that you require to retire, what your what your figure for financial independence would be or whatever your objectives, objectives and your goals are, once you know that, then you can think about what it is that you would have lost had you not been able to continue in, in, under full employment into that time. So it's almost like a, a risk mortgage in a sense and that each year that goes by, the requirement for uh, insurance actually decreases Whereas paradoxically, the likelihood of a payout payout on insurance gets greater as you're older. But the risk is if you're 35 now with a young family, the loss to you and your family is far greater uh, than it would be at 55. And I often have conversations, in fact, I'm having one now with somebody who is approaching retirement and is paying, they took out policies in their 50s and they're paying out, they're paying a lot of money to, to cover that. And my view is because they've invested their money well, that would you not just retire if anything did happen at this point? Now, of course, with insurance, there's always the possibility that if the person says, okay, I, I accept that point, I have saved up sufficiently, um, I have enough money behind me, my mortgage is cleared. If anything did happen, yes, there would be three years loss of income, but I see your point that um, the, the, the risk now is not what it was 20 years ago, even though I'm paying you know a huge premium for that. And if something happened in six months' time, then... Um, that then there would have been a loss but it still comes back to the same point that the the risk is when the individual is 20 25 years away hasn't gone through those final pay 
bands maybe hasn't got the national award or, or, or um, hasn't gone on to a private practice and if financial planning has gone well then all of these things should become less um, prevalent less important um, as time goes by because you're replacing the the loss of uh, future income and wealth with actual wealth behind the individual in the form of savings and investments so that concludes this episode, this cheery little episode, talking about what happens if uh, if people get unwell and can't work. Um, but it is important, and it's and um, as is things like establishing a will, and it's just one of those things that I think the way that I look at my personal circumstances is that I have to just put some of my income aside, a percentage each month, to cover myself if things go go, go wrong. I have a plan, and I review that plan, but this is the sort of backstop if the plan doesn't quite work out as I as I would have hoped. And then it can all be put to one side and forgotten about. So I reckon there's another two more subject matters pension related that I want to talk about. One of which we had a very uh, nice kind email from somebody saying they found one of the episodes very helpful, but it didn't quite suit their pay structure throughout their career. And we're working on a way of uh, calculating a fair, uh, what what we think might be a fairly typical pay structure for maybe the sort of median pay within the NHS, and and I think a useful uh, episode just focusing on how the McLeod judgment would affect that pay structure. So that will be uh, one of the next ones to cover, and then a political one, which I think will be interesting in terms of where may the attacks come from the public sector or, or attacks upon a public sector scheme, where they may come from on the basis that um, if you're forewarned and forearmed with the arguments against um, public sector pensions, yeah, then you'll be able to, in positions of influence or just in general, be able to better argue the reasons why that uh, why that why they're not uh, fair and they're and they're redundant so that's what's coming up thank you for everybody who's dropped a line and um, please feel free to do so if you can think of any particular subject matters um, that would be useful and then I think after those two episodes we might wrap this up and call it season one and then we'll have a body of work um, and NHS pensions are always going to be our, um, you know our a firm ground and a, and a common ground to return to but then I think I might open it up uh, and talk about some other financial planning themes perhaps a bit more about us and what we do in the background um, because and it just pension planning is only a small component of, of, of what we do um, and then just see where things take us thanks so much for listening in and I'll talk to you soon that's it for this month if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast we'd really appreciate it if you could spare a few moments to rate review or like us because this helps us get found by more people and please send us your questions for the next episode by tweeting us at barnaby cecil fp or emailing us at hello at barnabycecil.com you can also find out more about us by going to barnabycecil.com and here you can also book a call if you'd like to discuss your own particular question in more detail thanks for listening